What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. And as always, I'm joined by a guest. And today I'm joined by the fantastic Rhea Corrigan. And we are back. Oh, you! you the last time you came on was to talk this. And so you are back yeah. to talk Mike Flanagan. Yeah, or was it? Or was the last time the thing actually? Oh, it could have been. Yes, where I obviously watched the thing for the millionth time and enjoyed it, and then the thing from another planet, from the, the thing from called? another world, yeah. another world. I put on and went, "Oh, this is boring." I spent most of the time <laughs> yeah. about on my phone, and then you went, "Right, let's talk about the film." I had to confess, it's like I I watched it technically. Yeah. It was on, and I was yeah. in the room, and I remember the beginning and the end. Mm. The details from the middle were blurry. Generally, generally fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. that's fair, it's fair. I'd say that's kind of fair for that film. <laughs> but we are going to talk about something much better. Yes, much more engrossing. We we are back because we did a like a Mike Flanagan run, all his films and his TV shows, and we thought we were getting this last year. And didn't we? Didn't we got Midnight, the Midnight Club, which I'm gonna lie, I ain't gonna lie, I've not watched. I've not watched either. Um, because I was like, that doesn't look like something that's not for me, that's a teenager thing. <laughs> um, but now we have had The Fall of the House of Usher, and which obviously named for the Edgar Allan Poe story, <clears throat> but not although it is that is that's the that is the main gist of the story, it bleeds into a whole host of other Edgar Allan Poe um, stories, poems, uh, and other stuff. Um, and, yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, quick synopsis. This is a very quick synopsis. Uh, I'm going to read this from IMDb, because we'll get into all the details and stuff later on. But to secure their future uh, and fortune, two ruthless siblings build a family dynasty that begins to crumble when their heirs mysteriously die one by one. This is the uh, the Usher family, headed by Roderick Usher and his sister Madeline Usher. So let's start with just a general overview. Rhea, what were your initial or overall thoughts then for The Fall of the House of Usher? Oh, I'll try and keep it short because there's lots of thoughts. But <laughs> as, you know, big Mike Flanagan fan, um, mm. talking to you about it last year was just, or maybe the year before, I can't remember now, it feels like it's forever ago, is still one of, sorry, everybody else, one of the best discussions I've ever had. I loved it. I love revisiting all of his work. I think uh, Hill House is his mm. masterpiece. I mean, we all know, well, hopefully you listen to the other one, but... I absolutely loved Midnight Mass and I could still talk about Midnight Mass for 20 more hours, but Hill House for me is just his absolute masterpiece. And then this comes along and it has not toppled Hill House for me, but wow. Like, yeah, I just, for me, what works so well about Mike Flanagan 
is when it's something like this. Now, we all know Edgar Allan Poe, but probably lots of people don't know most of his short stories and poems and stuff like that. Everybody knows Raven and things like that. But what he's done here and what he's done with his other work, mostly with Hill House, is taken that work that people know mm. and modernised in such an accessible way that, you know, there are going to be people buying Edgar Allan Poe stories. Oh, yeah. Or on Amazon and their Kindles, checking out at the library, um, posting about it on Reddit and, you know, stuff like that. And I just think translating that into these eight different... Is eight, isn't it? Or is it seven episodes? Yeah, yeah, eight episodes. Eight, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doubted myself then. These, those eight different episodes all based around a different story or... or poem and things like that and bringing that to modern consciousness making it scary funny like this is the funniest yeah. out of all of his oh work. yeah the dark humor in this was, yeah is yeah i just think that like these are the sort of filmmakers we need not just for horror you know i'm always banging on about horrible horror filmmakers but mm. you know like this is and this has just come to me this is like clueless right mm. <laughs> Yeah, so Amy Heckling did Clueless, and everybody was suddenly like, "Oh my god, this is about Jane. This is Jane Austen, but modernized." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like that's that's what House of Usher is. It's also Succession, which is amazing because I love Succession. So it's like make Succession horror. Succession is already yeah. a horror. Everyone it is horrific. But this is this is yeah. You know, make it gory. Let's throw yeah. in a bunch <laughs> yeah. of blood and um, go at it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I was I was excited for this. I've been very excited because of how much I enjoy his work. And Midnight Mass being really the last, last one I watched, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and Bly Manor is fine. It's, you know, it's sort of... This comes over and sort of, like, kicks the shit out of Bly Manor, you know, sleeps with Midnight Mass, and then starts canoodling up to sort <laughs> of um, the Hill House... And you're just like Jesus, like you know, it just comes in and takes over. Like this has such a, a, a force to it, this show, um, and it's it's so confident. I think in everything it does. I think you couldn't pull this off. I don't think this couldn't be like your first show. This is the the work of a confident um, creator, um, and like you say, to go and so I mean, I've got you know I've got, I'm holding it here. This is my uh, complete works of Edgar Allan Poe. I've got here. Um, and like, you know, it's not a small book. Let me like, let me tell you, like this is a tome. This this is running to tightly packed wording, right? And it's about it's it's hardback size, and it runs to about eight hundred pages. It's not it's not small. If like reading for you before bed, that's it. Well, yeah, I, well, I had you know, I wore the smoking jacket, and uh, you know, by candlelight in front of a fireplace. Um, only way to read Poe. <laughs> Unfortunately, everybody else in the pub was a little perturbed. But, you know, <laughs> um, yes, but you know, it's it's it, what he's done here is so well done. And I, I was curious to sort of see because this has obviously been out about a week now. We're sort of recording this, just just under a week probably. Um, I wanted to go check out the reviews. I'm always curious, so I, you know, watched it. Go see what others think, and all the the reviews were good. I mean, this has got. An eight point one on IMDb. I think it's like a a four point two on on Letterboxd. So it's getting really you know um, positive uh, feedback. But what's interesting is there are still people in that one star going. This isn't the Edgar Allan Poe 
the fall of the House of Usher. And you're like, you're you're right, it's not. Like that nobody really wants to see that. <laughs> um, because it's two hundred you know, it's it's two hundred years old and uh, you know, we've we need to be updated. But there's definitely like purists out there that are still very much against, as you said, this sort of like this modernization uh of these tales. And I I can sort of get that to an extent, but like when it's this good, <laughs> I'm sort yeah. of like, no, I'll forgive that, that's fine. Um so yeah, I'm with you. I think this is this is a fantastically well done piece. Um, but the other thing as well, like not just sort of go, oh, we're going to do House of Usher. I'm going to do House of Usher, and then within it, I'm going to weave in, um, and also can I say how well it, it how well it weaved in? But I'm going to weave in Mask of the Red Death, Black Cat, um, all the ones it names for, you know, Telltale Heart, blah blah. And then in the meantime, going, I'm also going to weave in several poems that you don't realise I'm weaving in and a couple of extra stories you don't realise I'm weaving in until the end. You know, I, even I was like rushing to, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not hugely well-read on Poe, but I was like, there are episodes where I'm like, hang, hang on, hang on, I know that name. And I'm like wh- running through trying to find stuff. So, yeah. Um, that's what that's what I presumed because when we talked about this, you you said this. I mean, I might be misquoting, but it's this is like your favorite or one of your favorite pose. Yeah. Um and you so you were like super psyched for it. And so not I'm not gonna lie, watching it, I was like, I'm looking forward to Scott telling me all the random post stuff yeah. that I've missed it. Because <laughs> I've I've done a bit of a Tonya Todd and I've avoided anything to do that. I wanted mm. to watch it, come fresh to talk to you about it. Um because I've had to resist Reddit. Um, and everybody talking about it on there and like the horror threads and Reddit and stuff like that and all the articles and luckily I'm not on Twitter I'm not going to call it X anymore so like <laughs> not getting any of those yeah. uh, spoilers or anything like that so for me it's going to be really interesting so okay okay so my assumptions are now I I gathered straight away that everything is named after one of Poe's work got that mm. my other presumption is now I have read The Fall of the House of Usher Mm-hmm. Uh, I read it in preparation for the show coming out. And obviously there are characters named in that, but I presume all of the other characters are named after Poe characters? Yes. Okay, cool. So I've made that presumption. Um, that's the other thing I was going to say. So like the um, like the Annabelle Lee poetry that yeah. Roderick's doing, I'm presuming <clears throat> that's Poe work as well, being woven is. into the... Anna, Anna, I want to say, because I've got it here. So Annabelle Lee, I'm not going to read it all. Um, but and the just a poem called Annabelle Lee, and it's the one that that Roderick reads to her. Um, but it's it's such a beautiful poem. It's about lost as everything is with with Poe. It's about lost love. Um, but it's more sort of slightly upbeat than than the Raven. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So Annabelle Lee is about this. Is exactly that. You know, it, it was many and many years ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee and this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and to be loved by me but that's the opening paragraph and then basically she gets taken away and, and killed <clears throat> as you yeah. love Poe uh, yeah. she's so happy such a happy fella um, but the one that got me was as I was watching the first episode because I'm again like you know we, you read stuff or you've, you know use audible and, like names stick my weird words like stick in your head and so the name Fortunato. Yes, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Kept, kept sticking out to me. 
And I was like, you know, why do I know that that's one of them? And I was going through, and it wasn't until the end um, when you have the wall. You know, he starts talking to the brick wall. And I was like, oh, oh, I think I know. So there's a story called The Cask of uh, Amontillado. And it's about a guy who's a bit of a drunk, a bit of a sort of, no, not a wasteful, but he's like, you know, a regular guy. And he has a friend called, Fort, well, not a friend, a, a colleague, here, a, a, you know, somebody knows, called Fortunato, who is a bit of a dipshit. And they're, but they're both wine connoisseurs, but one feels that they're better. These ones were really, really snobby and all this other stuff. And Fortunato, sort of like in it, is described as wearing, you know, the jester costume that yeah. the guy wears when he's bricked up. That's the kind of what he is described as wearing in the opening <laughs> of this story. But he ends up having an affair with with the guy's wife. He gets caught, and so he bricks him. He bricks Fortunato and his wife up in the wall. Um. That's so. There's that's there's that story. So I'm like, oh my god. Um. So yeah, there's like deep cuts like within this, and I'm I'm, so sat, so I'm sat here with my book going like, yeah. oh my god. Like, <laughs> You're like, I'm so yeah, the best nerd ever. Did so. The other thing I was going to ask you is so throughout there's constant talk about ancient Egyptians. Uh, there is uh, obviously um, like. Uh, God, why can't I think of words? What is it you sit at? A desk. Madeline's desk mm. is a sarcophagus mm. and stuff like that. And it's constant throughout, like it's visual throughout, but they talk about it as well. And the way they talk about it, is that in Poe's work at all? It is a little bit. I mean, I think they've they've pushed it to the fore more so than I'd say is in Poe. Mm. Um, but he does often refer like some of his stories. I mean, everything from like uh, there's one called like the oblong box. Um, but I'm trying to think of other ones really. But he he does refer and has sort of like Egyptian motifs, but he hasn't like got a story set in ancient Egypt or anything like that. A lot of his is more sort of like I'd say Renaissance period forward, okay, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's a part where Flanagan's just like, no, that just looks cool. Like I just want, <laughs> I want, I want, I want, you know. Um, I just want to have like Bruce Greenwood like wielding a kopesh because it looks cool. Like that's <laughs> that's pretty much what's going on. With some of that. Well, I wonder um, if it all comes from the stones from Madeline's eyes because that's an opposed story, isn't it? It that's is. In Usher, that's in Fall of the House. Yeah, Usher. exactly. And I think, yes, exactly. I think so, so. Yeah. So I do think some of it is trying to facilitate mm. other bits. Um, but no, the stories themselves, like I say, it all leads up to this. You know the well. The, we'll talk about the end because the, the the fall of the, the the House of Usher. Um, but there's a couple of things I wanted to to, to ask you your thoughts because we'll, I want to get into the stories because, um, the opening episode, um, no second episode, the second episode, Mask of the Red Death, is is a kicker. Like it ends like with a real sort of like gut punch in an amazing way, and I love the, the Mask of the Red Death is a great story. Um. And we want to get to it. But one of the things I was curious about is the opening of the story, like the very sort of first episode, um, is them as young kids and you get sort of to learn their origin. The whole thing with their mother, what were your thoughts around sort of that, you know, like her digging herself out of a grave and, and all that? Did you get much from that when she attacked, obviously, for the, the, the original Fortunato? And, and... Yeah, well, I mean, so... For that, that immediately made me think 
funnily enough, of ancient Egypt, and we get mm-hmm. more symbolism of that. We get after this, Mori, so uh, Froderick's wife, um, is wrapped in bandages. You've got to call him that. It's so good. It's like, yeah. it's being funny, and I love it. Um, you know, she's wrapped in bandages and stuff like that. And so when it's happening, I was like, okay, so like there's this ancient Egypt vibe, mummies, zombies coming back from the death. What really is death? So they're talking to us about death. I was like, okay, I've got it. The house of Usher's going to fall. Mm. <laughs> we've had we've had deaths. We know death's going to happen. It's big on our minds, but it's like, what are the consequences of death? It's who gets to decide who is living and who is not. And, that, mm. and that's what I immediately got because, you know, the kids go and talk to their father who's disowned them, begging for help, saying she's going to start going, she's going to die. And they come back and Madeline decides that their mum's dead. Yes. Roderick doesn't. And I, you know, I believe Madeline truly thinks she's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they form this plan. They don't want to get social services involved. So they go and and bury her and it's like the responsibility of this young girl to decide who is alive or dead and I was like and then her mum raises you know her mum raises up and obviously then goes and kills their father and it's all traumatic and all this sort of thing but I thought there was something so interesting there about how it's Madeline making these decisions yeah you know we've already seen her starting to take charge but over life or life or death it is her she is the female twin making that decision and I was like okay we we're getting this Madeline is that person and then we sort of get a payoff for that later when it isn't her really yes who makes the decision because all through all the way through you're like Madeline's in control of this and then they when they start when she realizes it's Ferner it's Madeline who's discombobulated about it mm. Roderick isn't and and it makes you think oh because it was her she like forced Roderick into it or something like that. She's not had children. And then you get that huge revelation in the last yeah, episode. Yeah. And I love that. I love that slow burn twist of how they've set up Madeline for you as the viewer. And then you get to that final episode and it's, I was like, oh, what? you tricky little bastard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the thing is, I want to talk about the two siblings. I want to talk, before, I to talk about Madeline before, because we've talked about the Egyptian part and we talk about death. I mean, death's, a major part of this show. Um, there's two things I want to sort of want to sort of comment on. So the mother coming back to, back to life, like you say, you know, because Madeline's like, no, she was dead. Like, um, and I love the scene of when they get back in the house, and it's really well shot when she's behind uh, Roderick, like creepy as, um, and leaning into because you've obviously got Roderick sat with um, Augustus in the in the Usher house, sort of telling some of the tale. And I love the fact that it has sort of, I don't say it nods, but it uses the technique of uh, Hill House, where he's like, turn around, you know, my mother's here. And he's like, I'm not going to turn around. And then you're like, because you're going, what? And then you just see the shadow move off. And you're like, oh, shit, she is there. Like, you know, and then it gets more and more in your, literally in your face <laughs> as the show goes on. So I love that. But do you think it was um, Verna that brought the mother back? Has she been involved from that point? Like, did she instigate some of this, or was she just waiting for them in 1980? See, it's so interesting because then now I just want to talk about Verna forever. Yeah, we will um... get to Verna because she's <laughs> awesome. And like Carla um... uh, uh, Gugina is 
amazing oh, this in is, this. This is her best Flanagan work. Oh, yeah. yeah like, I mean, she's like, yeah. she's amazing in this. It's yeah. just, um, I mean, this might be like one of her best pieces of work ever. Like, it's like, okay, we'll get onto that. Yeah. It's about to go off onto a little. Um, great question. I don't know. And I like that. I yes. like that it can be open to in your interpretation. I like thinking that it, she isn't involved in it. I like thinking that because she's like a little raven, um, she's like a little raven now, so patronising. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, no, you do not want to patronise her. That's no. terrifying. Um, you know, and it's like, she's collecting shiny things, people, right? So can she sense from the mm-hmm. moment someone is conceived that they are going to be a shiny person that she can radiate towards? Um so I don't know, and I like that it's open. Oh yeah, it's I to... love the yeah, it is. It's a little bit ambiguous, but that was yeah because I kept going back and been like I even yeah. watched a little bit back and I was like, do we see her? Is she about? No, we don't see anything, but there's suggestions of things. Um, the other thing is going back to this death. So one of the things that you you say about the ending, and we are going to jump around a little bit because I think we need to. <clears throat> the death in this is is um, a theme in the sense as well between the two siblings. We learn we learn a lot. But one of the things we obviously know from from experiencing Madeleine is that she is mathematically driven. Like she's all about doing the maths. She's a computer genius. Like she's inventing these algorithms. Like you know, years before anybody else. Like she's a, a true genius. I think because even Roderick says like, no, she's like a true genius. Um, and what she's aiming for is this idea of your uh, consciousness being uploaded onto an AI. Like she's that's what they're pushing for, and you see she's sort of working towards it on several occasions. And then you obviously see this idea uh, that Roderick has of, you said about the Egyptian sort of themes. He has this idea of, you know, uh, creating tombs. And then you have all this stuff around you and this idea. Um, and you, but the other thing is we find that he should have been, could have been a poet in the other life. If they hadn't taken the deal, you know, sliding doors, that would have been him, a, a poet. So he is a, he is Poe in this sort of story. Um, and he has this idea he could have been a storyteller and he could have been all this other stuff. So to me, the one thing I think is interesting is they are both looking for a sense of immortality, but she's doing it through like technological means and he's doing it through these sort of like, well, not religious, but this idea of like the fantasy element, the ritual, the magic element and how that represents them. But the whole thing is about, they know they're going to die. They are well aware of what this means and they are looking to preserve themselves beyond death in different ways. Um, and so I love how that theme sort of comes up throughout the show, this idea of like, not just legacy, but like immortality. Like how is it that, that you can live forever in some way? Um, so yeah, like, you know, you said about the Egyptian stuff, I think it's really cool that that's laid there um, and yeah, is eventually used <laughs> to <laughs> uh, great effects. It's for the a big final scare at the end. And it's so interesting what you said as well, especially when it comes to Madeline, because I remember watching the final episode and I think it's sort of like in the third episode, maybe when she gets the stones mm-hmm. and she's really excited to show them to Lenore. And it's great to see her excited in about like this physical thing because we don't see any of that of Madeline. We don't see where she lives. We don't nope. see where she spends any of her time apart from in the orbit of... Um, the other characters right 
And so and I think that's really interesting how they've done that when even like in the past, in the, the 70s, isn't it? And she's at um, Roderick's and Annabelle Lee's house. Mm-hmm. Like, where does she go after? Where does she live? Who does, yeah, I love, it's who a really, does good, she it's a really good point. With? It's a really good point. You, she's the only character whose house or home you never see. You never see it. So you, so you never know, like, basically, she's like a... She's like a little spectre, like she's mm-hmm. like using little, but she's like a spectre that's like popping up and what she's doing. So I find it interesting that she's so tied into technology and kind of, and sort of like, what's that connection between her almost, um, I was about to say homelessness, but that's what not what I mean, like her lack of placement anywhere mm. in technology. And then at the end, when she's quote unquote dead, that Roderick decides to put the stones in yeah. and almost bury her as as if an ancient Egyptian. That's and it, And I yeah. can't help but think, but does Madeline want that? Because she is a technology person. Oh, no, she did not. No, 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 100%. And so I find that so interesting, that's, mm. that huge disconnect between him and her, these siblings that have been so close and built this empire, that he's, that like in those final moments of when she's, she's quote unquote dead um <laughs> that he's for me i was like this isn't true to her character although mm. she loves all that stuff you can see by her desk the things in her office and and i really like that that it sort of brings home that that they've never been sort completely of like, yeah, they're, ne- they're never been completely you know they've been close but in simpatico like they've always been there's always been a, yes there's always yeah. been a little bit of a break between them um, which and then it's ironic that they build a wall together. Yes, <laughs> yes, hundred percent. Like, yeah, that's the thing. It's all this symbolism that shows in it of them. But when they do, one thing is, it's always when they do um, uh, Griswold. When they do wall up Griswold in that, you know, in the basement of the building, it's her that does all the talking. Like, yeah. She's the one. Um, and, you know, Roderick just sort of stands there and sort of you know does his bit, but doesn't doesn't say anything she's the force that dr- that drives them through life um but roderick's always been the face you know like mm. it's like to say behind every great man is a greater woman that sort of thing like you know it's she she doesn't want to be particularly in the limelight because and i, I like that because there's a question when she speaks to Werner at the at the bar and it shoots back to 1980 and she says what would you rather have you know uh would you rather be rich or famous rich like without any, you know, qualms or or hesitation, it's straight to rich. So yeah, she's got no compunction about being in the limelight. She doesn't want to be that. That's not her thing. She just wants the power that comes with mm. the money and stuff. And so Roderick absorbs that, allowing her to do her things in the background. Um. So yeah, so they've always worked. They've had like a, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um. What's I can't it? Read I'm, the word either. I'm not. Yeah, look, I was thinking a host. You know, it's called like um. Yeah, they're, they're basically, they are. They are in sync, but they've been able. Yeah, you know what I mean. Bloody hell! But they don't have a healthy relationship. They do not have a say that. Yeah. Well, this is one of the most toxic shows I think we've ever seen. Oh, I love it! I love um, it! I love. Yeah, like, I know lots of people can't watch shows like Succession because they're like these people are terrible, and I know so many terrible people in my life just because they're rich. It doesn't make them any more or less terrible. Mm. And I'm like, 
Oh, I don't know. The world's on fire. I really want to watch terrible yeah. people. <laughs> Especially if we're all going to get, get their comeuppance. Especially if they're going to get cut in half, then I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm all for it. Um, yeah, but that does. You know, we've talked about those. I want to sort of get some of the characters. We are going to get to Verna. We are definitely going to. Right, but okay, we should. Sorry, I know you've got notes and stuff. I'm going to interrupt it and ruin it all. We should talk about the siblings. Mm-hmm. And what would be really great is if one of us, happy for it to be you, did a little <laughs> rundown of the siblings, and then you and I are going to rate them live, best to worst. As in human beings. Yeah. Best of us human beings. Fair enough. <laughs> I just thought of this, by the way. Well, let's go for... Probably let's should go, have let's... messaged you first. No, no, that's fine. Let's go in age. Okay. Because they start, they die in age order. Yes, yes. Um, so we have uh, Perry, Usher. Um, I should remember now. So I can't remember the order they're going. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Then it's Camille. Who can I say? Oh, oh, oh. Kate Siegel is also <sighs> phenomenal in this. Like, That's so good. She scared me. I hated her, <laughs> and I was hugely attracted to her all in like an instant. It was it was kind of confusing. <laughs> um, right then we have um, Leo Usher. Uh, they're the three bastards. That's four have- bastards, aren't they? No, 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 because Vic's not considered one of the bastards. Ah, uh, yes, he, of course, yes. She sort of weaseled her way in. So yeah. then, there's, then there's Vic, and then there is um, uh, Tamerlane, and then there's Froderick, or Frederick. <laughs> so that's them in age. So, yeah, so Perry, uh, Camille, um, Leo, Vic, Tamerlane, and Frederick. Of the six. So now yeah. go on then. Let's see like live we're doing this time. I think is in so this is interesting. So you're gonna say so in in who are the worst human beings in Yeah, that? so do we want to start really hard? Like do we wanna start <laughs> Do we wanna start with best to worst or worst to best? Best to worst. Okay. Let's let's start on a low note. <laughs> End on a low note, I mean. Yeah. So I will say they are all terrible. Yes. So this is not <laughs> this is not oh I'd love to be friends with them because they are all horrific people but i would say it goes camille is mm-hmm. the best i think she's she is really good at her job and her job just happens to be terrible i've known many pr people most of them are lovely <laughs> camille yeah. is a terrible pr person not as it, she's very good at her job but she's a terrible she's a brilliant person. pr person yeah <laughs> terrible yeah. human being yeah. Yeah, yeah um but actually like she doesn't really do anything mm. that bad she's just i don't know she kind of like supports fox news and stuff which is shit but also she is like this is the terrible family i'm in i'm kind of a terrible person i'm gonna embrace it yeah. and she also gets a bit of a pass for me because when she fires her employees who don't want to have sex with her anymore which is in their contracts she gives them severance pay and yeah. i think not many people in America would do that. No. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to find some some pluses then. And then I'd say the next is Leo mm-hmm. Napoleon. I would say because he is clearly a cheating bastard who also doesn't really do anything and just takes loads of drugs and lives a yeah. hedonistic lifestyle. But that doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. He is a bad person. 
but he doesn't really do anything. He's not hurting anyone particularly, no, is he? No. Yeah, he's not a drug dealer. He's not out on the streets selling And in fact, he's he's the opposite of that. Like, he says to um, Perry, he's like, you're better than this. You're not a cheap drug pusher. Mm. He's like, you know, this is recreational. He's weirdly supportive of Frederick, and Frederick wants drugs and gives him lots of advice. Sure, he kills an imaginary cat. Um <laughs> And is a terrible boyfriend and locks a woman out on his balcony. Yeah. <laughs> that he's cheated on his boyfriend with. But overall, not really doing anything too bad. Just one of those bad people in sort of like overall bad people in society who have loads of money and don't do anything good with it, right? He could be doing something good. He's the stuff. awful, he's the awful best friend in a wrong Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Perfect. Okay. So then <laughs> it starts to get a lot harder yeah. to rate them. Now, I would probably say, considering I absolutely hated him and I was so glad he died in the way he did, Perry is next. Yeah. I just Perry is a psychopath and mm-hmm. is awful to people, every single person around him, and all he wants to do is own everybody around him, and he is terrible. But his other siblings are worse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, we get like much of a muchness, really, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. Sort of like, yeah. <laughs> And now, and he was going to blackmail all those people. And he was going to blackmail all of those yeah. people. Um, so next up, I would say it's probably Tammy, as I like to call her. She'd hate it, Tamerlane. Um, mm. Because, again, another bad person is abusive to her husband. Um, and, like, it's just, like, really not great. Has many, many emotional issues. Has to have uh, sex workers... <laughs> have sex with her husband to have intimacy but she's also terrible to all the people around her the one bit of softness we see with her with Juno Mm. is makes me think if she wasn't an usher she could have actually been a good person yes Um, but or if she or if she'd have stayed with her mother yeah exactly or she'd stayed with her mother Mm. but she's so corrupted by everything around her and the way she treats people the way she dismisses people she thinks that they're lesser than her is very bad. I mean, she also does other bad things. But I also realise it's taking a long time. No, yeah, no, no. Also, there's a, the other thing is with Samantha Sloyan, who plays Tamerlane, the other problem is she's one of these actresses. She was so horrible when she was in Midnight Mass that some of that carried over. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I was a bit like, oh, I'm going to hate you. You might even be the nice person in this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to yeah. kind of hate you. So, yeah. <laughs> she and she's quite fanatical in this as well. Oh, so she, yeah. you know, she's great at doing that that character. She's a scary. Way, she plays like that scary, focus, really well. scary really well. Yeah, the way she controls how she speaks when she's a character, mm. like, is unbelievable. I would love to hear an audio book by her, but I would also be mm. terrified at the same time. Have her reading some uh, Poe. That'd be great. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> I am up for that. We need to make that happen. So the next... So this is maybe a controversial choice, but I am going to say victory because mm-hmm. terrible, terrible animal cruelty, about to do terrible cruelty to human beings in trials that have not been signed off that would clear that will kill the woman who is Verna but who she thinks is somebody else and chops up little chimpanzees carry them out in her bag terrible terrible human being and plays off um like this whole 
but I just I just want to impress my father I just want to save the world stuff like that worst type of like quote unquote hum, human ta- hum, humanitarian yeah. person because she's not doing it for the good of humanity no. or society she's doing it for personal gain and is committing atrocious acts and then my f- favorite is maybe not the right word but my favorite usher child frederick freddie slash froderick mm. because as soon as henry thomas came in i was like by the end of this he is going to be the most despicable character the way he plays it at the beginning you just know he's got that horrible abusive person person like the way and he acts so um like he's like the way he's the way he he's a horrible good guy he's the horrible yes, good that's guy it, yeah like, i'm a I nice guy just, yes nice guy that's it i couldn't remember what it was he's yeah got, and i was like oh this is gonna be bad and like that connection that he's got with lenore and i'm like mm, but he doesn't actually and then there's like some parenting things and the way he dismisses her the way he talks to his wife Mori and stuff like that and i was like he's gonna be so despicable by the end of this series and that he his off. his is the um yeah like you say his is the most revealing arc mm. because you sort of know that he's going to be despicable as you say like it's it's not it's not hugely obvious how and it's obviously drug fuel towards the end but once the gloves are off like you know how the the, the ending of this is almost like um he's taken the drugs he's done what he's done to to his wife um uh, which Really, like, was made me gasp. Like yes. when you, when I figure out what he's done. So because he says he says about having a moment or a, a, an act of authority to keep people in line, and you realise he's pulled some of her teeth out with a pair of pliers. And I was just like, Jesus Christ! Like I literally had, a, I was at the dentist like last week, and I'm still cringing. <laughs> um, but that scene, and she's like in a bloody mouth, and so I was just like, horrific. Like that really got to me, and it to me it felt like. This has opened a gateway in him. Like he's always known this is here, but now he knows he can do it. Like mm-hmm. this has opened that perverse, um, vindictive gate, and like you know, no one is going to be safe now. Yeah, and like, and all he needed was a reason, which made yes. me think back about his relationship with Mori, and like because we don't know anything about her past, and obviously he's completely rich, and we hear there's like this thing in the first episode where she's making the cakes and mm. he's saying you're getting really good at it and there's sort of like a hint that she was doing something before but then she quit to become his wife and a mother yeah and now she's reclaiming some part of herself and he's dismissive of what she's what part she's reclaiming yeah because he's busy bowling mm. and like and that cake is amazing and it's and i was like oh you slimy little bastard yeah like yeah. she's probably been spending like fifteen years pretending to be the perfect wife because she's scared. But I, like, I wouldn't say that he necessarily, necessarily physically abused her before the time. No, but she knows there's something within him. So she's she'll have seen glimpses of it. Yeah. Or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I agree. I I I, I wholly agree with like this. Um, it's an interesting one that you say because I think, like you said, I think to me, um. Leo and like Camille sort of slightly interchangeable in different ways. Cause Leo just wants to like literally says, like, I just want to be sort of left out. I want to play computer <laughs> games. 
And yeah, I want to be. A I bit feel of a you, shit. Leo. Yeah, I want. Yeah, I'm, I want to be a bit of a shit, but generally, like I'm not hurting anyone. Like you know, he sort of throws parties, and even to be fair to him, like he's actually said, like you know, when he's when his um, boyfriend calls him out and says about the drugs and stuff, uh, Julius calls him out, and he says, "No, I've got it in control." He, he, you know, there's a moment where he he clearly does care for Julius. Like he's not. Mm. He's not unfeeling. Like he knows what he, some, he often knows what he's doing is the wrong thing, but he knows he can get away with it because he's an usher. That kind of thing. Mm. Camille just sort of enjoys the power, I think. And so she's, yeah, I think yeah, you might be right. Too. Yeah, maybe they um, need to be swapped on my list. Yeah, yeah. But they're I just the only really liked Camille. <laughs> oh no, she's amazing. Like again, like I said, Kate Siegel is just um, so so. Um, Engrossing, like no, you say there's a characters in this that sort of like just you know. Well, I think I think the whole cast, I think everyone in this does a phenomenal job. But there's like there's certain ones where they're like you are a flame point, like in each you are going to be the 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 center of that scene, and they just run with it and they just go with it. And I think you know, fair play to them. Um, what's interesting to sort of to go through the stories is to sort of bring it back to sort of the the Poe uh, comparisons. The the uh, a midnight dreary the first episode is obviously sort of sets all things out and all that kind of stuff and so it's a bit you know that's obviously um, the first line of the Raven. Um, when it had like, all the mask of the Red Death, I was like, oh, wait, they're just going to name them after random stories or whatever. So I wasn't expecting much, but then when the mask of the Red when that second episode, so if the mask of the Red Death is a guy called Prospero, who is a lord. Um, who over an area that is covered with plague, they had they're suffering from this plague, the Red Death. But in within his court, like you know, with the rich people all in this court in this castle, and he just basically watches the poor die. Like he throws, he basically humiliates them and throws scraps to them and other stuff, and then decides to have this big party. And at the party, like you know, he's sort of like, ha ha, look at me, I'm amazing, and he's sort of, you know, he's really like that that hedonistic kind of person. And there is this character that starts killing the people off, and it's dressed in red. And then it, when it's revealed who it is under the mask, it's himself, like it's his face looking back at back at him. But it's this idea that the red death was always inevitable and is inescapable and that sort of thing. Um, but it's all about like hedonism and you know. Um, putting yourself above the peasantry and all this other stuff. So it's, you know, it's, and so to put the, what they turn it into in this episode is, is brilliantly a way of modernizing it. And Perry, who is actually called Prospero, um, is like this phenomenal character that does this stuff. And it's just like, you say, it's going to be an orgy at midnight and we're going to do all this other stuff. Um, and it starts to introduce the supernatural elements because we see Werner on the roof at one point next to the tanks. So you go, oh, okay, well, there's something telling me there. Um, but I, I constantly, I'm like, okay, well, how far is this going to go? Because the, the, in Mask of the Red Death, like you know, it's described as being this plague-like thing, so I can't see they're going to go that far. Like, you know, what's going to happen? Um, builds up to the party, you know, you've all this stuff, and you're going like, okay, well, what's going to happen? And then the moment those first few drops, and you hear the the, the hissing. Oh, the sound in this show is amazing. Jesus, yeah. yeah, the sound design in this is brilliant. Um, but that that those last four minutes of that episode, like you've had all of it in the party. Verna's been there, and she said, like you know, leave now. And she tried to save Frederick's wife, um, whose name escapes me, uh, Morella. Yeah, 
he's trying to save it, leave now, and she sort of decides not to, or sort of it breaks the the spell. Um, but that those people are writhing on the floor, like their skin just like slushing off them, all sort of stuff. Like, yeah, I. <laughs> it's graphic, but like, it's it's um, it's so well done. Like, this is you know horrific in the truest form like there are scares in this but it's also going to give you horrific imagery that you're going to have to deal with um and that was the moment at the end of the second episode i was like oh they are not fucking about now it's just so unexpected from mike flanagan as well because he's really hasn't done gore i was thinking back and thinking like what's the goriest stuff that he's done and i haven't really been able to point the broke the broke neck lady is probably the, the yeah the, right the, yeah like that is probably it you know maybe some stuff in midnight mass um with the, with the like, vampire but it was never but it wasn't gory no. exactly um and I and so <laughs> it started happening and I was like holy shit fella <laughs> I was like how long have you been holding this in for yeah and it's and it's he doesn't cut away from it no and that was another interesting thing that i thought i I was like i i don't enjoy that i've gone back and watched a couple of episodes to sort of refresh my memory on some things and i watched the second episode and i skipped that bit until verna comes in and puts the mask in because i was like and i don't i am not bothered by gore Mm. But I was just like, do you know, there's a lot going on in the world at the moment. I just don't need to see that yeah. again. <laughs> um, and this... But I found it so interesting. It went on for so long. And then in the next episode, we continue to see it. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> so... I think Mike Flanagan hates this character. The only yeah. way I can think, like, the realisation yeah. <laughs> I have. Like, he was just like, no, fuck Prospero. We're going to watch it burn for two episodes. Um no, but this idea, as I say, the stories, you know, because I want to quickly read them out. You get Murder in the Room Morgue. I'm, I'm careful of spoilers because you're right. I, th- th- this is going to be, um, hopefully, will be a reignition of, of re- you know, ignition of people reading Poe. Um, but I am going to give you some spoilers. Right? So, Murder in the Room Morgue is con- often considered the first detective story, um, as a the kind of detective format that you would later then get with Agatha Christie and others as well, sort of like in, you know, those kinds of things. And it's about these murders in a morgue, and they're not sure whose it was that was committed these murders. It turns out to have been orangutan. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So this is episode three. Yeah. This is episode three. So murder in the room morgue, and I love the fact that it's called Rue, and they give R U E a reason, like they give it. It's an, it's a, an acronym. Um, same with the black cat. You know, this introduction of the of the, of the black cat, and black cats appear in quite a lot in in Poe. Um. But again, like this idea of sort of lost, you know, losing your mind, insanity, and this, you know, this whole thing, it's all there. And again, you say about the graphic nature of this, one of the things that sort of um, each of these episodes has something that mm. truly freaked me out. You said about this first, in the, sec- in the second episode, it's the people being burnt with acid and stuff. The second one that really sort of threw me a little bit was you have, uh, we are going to get to Verna, when she starts aping out and stuff, and she rips open her shirt, and she's got the cuts and and the sutures down there, and then Camille lifts up her phone, and it's an enraged chimp looking at her. Man, that gave me goosebumps. Yeah, same here. um, Same. It's when she first gets up, and she's 
walking along that steel yeah. cable and I was like I know what you're doing and yeah. I don't feel good about it no. <laughs> like, I mean I do because it's really well done it's amazing the way it's, mm. it's made, exactly really well done but I do not feel good right now and, no. I, and when Camille is like fuck it I know what's about to happen yeah, yeah, yeah. raises her camera and it's just like this is so good yeah <laughs> This is so good. And and again, there's sorry, um, yeah. you know, and there's that throughout where we're seeing Verna and she's personifying each of the things. No, yeah, I'm gonna wait until we get to Verna. Yeah, we will yeah, we'll yeah. get quickly. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll run through the I really like what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah I will run through the story. Uh, no, but the black cat, when Leo goes nuts and he's smashing up the house, like that's really unnerving for me. Yeah. Because like that's a loss of sanity, like you know, and everyone's like, "Oh, it's the drug fueled rage," and he's smashing up the hammer, like the house with Thor's hammer. That was kind of funny, but so good, yeah. But like that's really unnerving. And then you see when he goes over, like that's the, the actual death isn't as scary to me as him smashing up the house, which was like, yeah, this could be someone losing their shit. Um, and we know we see beforehand in that episode him falling and smashing into the ground mm. so we know that's his death and yes. so we're just waiting that build-up so good the yeah. pacing of that build-up just keeps keeps yeah, teasing. keeps and going we've already been visually told how yeah, he's about yeah. to die and as you say you said for the imaginary cat because again when you finally see the photo of verna she's like holding like a squirrel or something else <laughs> bizarre um, Telltale Hut, Vic sort of um, Victorine's meltdown, the guilt and everything, and the, and the reveal at the end of that, because you've got that like the squeaky thing, and that's the heart monitor thing um, going off, and obviously much like the Telltale Hut, I don't hear it. So the Telltale Hut is um, a um, a guy enraged kills his uh, former lover's current lover, and takes his heart. And, and has it under his, keeps it in a box under his um, floorboards. I thought it was floorboards, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't remember the story properly, but I thought, mm. I thought it was his floorboards, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, the guilt of what he has done keeps coming back and he can hear the heart still beating. Um, and eventually when the police come to take him, it's because he's been acting so strangely. And he says, like, can you know, can't you hear it? And he ends up pulling the floorboards up and presenting the heart. And they're all like, Jesus. And he's like, still beating. And they're like, it's it's not, you know, <laughs> nutter. Um, but the end of this, the end of the again, this is one of those moments where I was like, I didn't know where this was going. Um so you've had like Victorine sort of like, yeah, you know, she keeps she keeps hearing this thing. There's clearly guilt there. And I'm like, okay, well, what is this guilt? That what how is this leading to her death? Um, and I know she had this argument, but then when you see her throw that thing, I was like, okay, that you never saw it hit anything, you know. You never see, you never see a body. And I was like, so I was weirded by that. But then that reveal at the end. So her dad, Roderick, comes to visit her because he's the one that needs this this heart thing because of his vascular um dementia. Um, and it's he's like, what's that sound? And she's like, yeah, right. You know, like you can hear yeah. it too. But then he says, and what's that smell? And then I was like, oh, oh no. And then the memories will come rushing back to her. And then you see um, her girlfriend Ali, and like cut open, and just this thing on a dead heart. And again, like the ending, and, where I'm just like, Jesus. <laughs> but do you know what creeps me out the most? That when um. 
when she's talking to her and her uh-huh. dad, she's going, no, she needs to apologise for what she just said. And you yes. see Bruce Greenwood's reaction. Yeah. <laughs> and you see how he's like, this is not a safe space, but I need to talk to her as if this is all really happening. Yeah. And then he just cracks and is like, she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so good. He's, he's like, he's so horrified. And he's like, okay, we need to get her out of here. Uh, because she may murder me. Um, and he's funny, like, fuck it. She's dead. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So, so creepy. And just the way he then has to switch and just just sort of like he, he, try and yeah. force her into reality. That, that's it. Yeah. Cause that's what he is, isn't he? He's, like, he's trying to be a sort of like a bit of a, like a, uh, like a cold shower, like a, just a, a shock, like, you know. And it sort of works because she's, she's like, you're right. Her heart is useless. Yeah, we need a fresh one, and so she sort of cuts, tries to cut her own heart out. Um, incredible! Um, another a great ending. Um, all these have been pretty well known. Um, I would say Poe stories, and we're going to get to the pit and the pendulum, which is a very short story. I'm going to quickly jump one. Is it's literally I think like five pages, it might be less than that. Um, and it's about a guy who wakes up in the dark, and all he can hear is the noise of the is of the blade pendulum swinging oh above, above him, and it's him narrating um, how it how it, uh, it it sounds, um, and it's a phenomenally scary story. Uh, page fifteen. So let me just sort of, um, but the, all those have been you know big. Um... Yes, yeah, so it says it starts with I was sick sick unto death with that long agony. And when they at length unbound me and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death was the last of distinct accentuation that reached my ears. It's that sort of like, you know, he's just in a, the rest of it is him in this dark room describing how he was just left to be tortured. And it's, it's horrendous, but but so I love the idea. But this pit and the pendulum, just being trapped, being unable to move, and this thing getting closer to you, and it slices Frederick in half, and that's cool as well. Gold <laughs> Goldbog is a bit of a deep cut. Okay, tell me. So I'd never really heard of. I've, I've read bits of it. It's not one I've read. Uh, but Goldbog is about obsession. Ooh. So and it's literally about a gold bug. Like it's about this guy who um, I've not read it all, or I sort of did a bit of research, but it's basically a guy who gets fixated on this this gold bug, um, and it's a story about that. And obviously, that's what Tamerlane gets obsessed with is is you know this idea of the gold bug is being this this health thing. It's about her fixation on doing something good, proving herself, and all this other stuff. And it's it's so again, like you know, it plays out in a similar way that like someone's obsession is what ends up killing them and stuff, and it's always about them. You know, um, bringing it upon themselves. Um, so I was fascinated to look at. Wow, they've really gone like a Ooh. deep, deep dive on some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, just to have it. So it's not just the fact that you know, because often we have TV shows, and I'll go, "Oh, every episode is going to be named after a poem or a story or whatever." You know, and you go, "Cool." No, this was actually laying out and utilizing, and as you said, like a modernization of the the whole thing is the fall of the House of Usher. Which doesn't have is nothing about a family. It's it's literally about a brother and sister and a person who's visiting them, um, and this idea of a curse and why they can't have children and all this other stuff. And it ends with the the house literally sort of falling into a bog. Um, but this is like in the middle. We're going to insert 
actual like an anthology series of Poe stories. And I, I thought that was so, so phenomenally well done that um, you know, a round of applause to Flanagan and Co. for for pulling that together. And it's so good, and it's those threads, it's all those threads that are so good. And each episode is a character study. Yes. So nothing feels wasted. It doesn't nothing feels like filler. It's you know, as with everything, Mike Flanagan, everything's very deliberate. And I don't feel like there is really a second wasted with Mm-mm. any of the characters. There's at no point for me personally where I went, this doesn't need to be in here. This feels a tad over long. Uh, why is this happening? You know, he has got the uh, he's got the Back to the Future storytelling down. Yes. Everything is there for a reason, and that's across eight episodes. Yeah. How is that possible? You know, like and each it, episode again, is meticulous, isn't it? That's yeah, the thing. yeah, and it's and I think that's why I like it so much because I think that's the strength of Hill House. I think mm-hmm. that's the strength of Midnight Mass, and then it's the same here. I feel love and care and passion, like reverence for the source material, but wanting to elevate that source material. Yes in every single thing that's happened that he's put in those three shows, but especially in this. And I yes. just think that's so amazing. And I, and it, you know, for me, this feels like it's like 10 years worth of love and work. You know, yeah. I feel that on the screen and it probably isn't. It's probably like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a weekend. This was. Yeah. Like, <laughs> cause he's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just want to say before, because we will we'll, after this, you know, we'll get on to two of the characters, and we'll we'll talk. But one of them will be Werner. Um, but the other thing I just wanted to mention, you say about House um, Hill House, and this is obviously the third in his House trilogy, because right? I think Midnight Mass is great. But you've had like Haunting of Hill House, well, it's, it's, it's yeah, uh, Bly Manor, and then Fall of the House of Usher. But because they both got House and other things, I actually feel that. Having watched this, this is the duology with um, Hill House uh, for yeah. some key reasons. So, both about families, like you know, particular kinds of families and the trauma that they've had. Um, but I, one of the things that was I was fascinated to watching is this is about sort of like a close knit family being torn apart whilst. Uh, um, Hill House is about a family that was torn apart tra- coming together through a tragedy, um, and how they sort of they find all this sort of like you know I mean, it, you know for it being scary and kind of sad. There's a love and a you know a sweetness to to Hill House I think that comes through yeah, by absolutely. the end, and so I feel that the, the, this feels like the antithesis. They are the antithesis yeah. of each other. Do you know what I mean? Like they are at each end of the spectrum, but they are connected in so many ways. Like I feel you could you can watch Hill House and House of Usher, and they are a pair. Like this is the yin and yang of Mike Flanagan, um, in so many, so so many ways. Yeah, um, this is my Prince Charles Cinema in London TV double bill all nighter. You have to get there yeah. in the morning, change into pajamas, watch. Mm. So you'd start with oh no things. I'd say you'd start with Hill House because you'd want to watch this 
at night, but Hill House is so scary. You want to watch yeah. Hill House at night. So actually you'd have to do this during the day. And then Hill House starts at midnight. And then you all tumble out of the PCC in the morning, have a photo taken in front, and then somehow have to get like yeah. a tube and bus. 16 home. hours. This, You're yeah. looking at 16 hours this would be worth my, of watching. Yeah, this yeah. would be my double bill. But I do, and I do that would be tough going, but it'd be amazing. Um, stick on the nappy and let's go. Um, <laughs> but there is just something there. I honestly think, and I wonder, I'd love to speak to Mike Flanagan and say, like, right, because I feel, I think this came from Hill House. Like, there's something that he's got. Yes, it's all about Poe, and there's all that wonderful structure and, and the symbolism and the use of the stories. But there is something here that, that started in Hill House, you know, where, like, Blind Manor was, like, a bit of a watered-down sequel of doing the same kind of thing. And Midnight Mass is him going off and doing something completely different, and it's it's brilliant. But this is him coming back and going like, "This is what Blind Manor should have been. I shouldn't have tried to do the same thing. This is this is born of Hill House for me, and you know, in no bad way. Like they are they are intrinsically oh, linked yeah. for for, for me. And it's about families when he's yes. doing work about family and relationships. That's when he is at his strongest. Mm. You know. I don't know if he was raised by family therapists or something. <laughs> but obviously, I'm being a bit dismissive on purpose, but he gets it and he gets how a family can be completely torn apart but still love each other and they can still be kind. Even in the terrible people mm. in the House of Usher, and these are terrible people, there are these moments of kindness and not just from Lenore, you know, we see it from some of the other characters and I'm like, you're all despicable, but you're, but if you weren't this family, if you, if they hadn't made the deal, you would all probably be good people. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. And, and I, and I yeah. love that. I love that in all of his story, in all of his stories, it's, it's there's moments sort of, of tenderness from them aren't yeah. there that's the thing for all can, all of them have a moment of tenderness where you go like oh shit like there is something and we can recognize there. that in ourselves and our own families mm. and i think that's why his work's so interesting and why i revisit it a lot because i think he just kind of god's sounding a bit wanky but like he just kind of gets humanity and wants to yeah. explore that on screen Yes. And I find that fascinating. I find the way he presents it really fascinating. Yes. Uh, let's just quickly touch on, very quickly we'll touch on two sort of other characters that exist, mainly to facilitate the story, but are still great. Um, Carl Lumley as uh, Augie, or Austin Dupin, Dupine, who is great. Yes, um, so good in this. Great character. And he's, yeah, the, the, the whole sort of, the, him and Roderick sat in, sitting opposite in the decaying house and stuff. Like They're both... So good, and then both have moments of fright and anger and everything else. Um, also, did you ever watch Reacher? Just want to say, no, I didn't watch Reacher. No. Okay, so Prime on Reacher, the young version of Madeline and the young version of Oggy are both in Reacher. Oh, really? Yeah, so when they're both, so <laughs> when they're in this, I was just like, Woo, that must have been quite good fun. Um, so anyway, uh, but the other one is, is, is Mark Hamill as Arthur Pym. <sighs> So when he first came on, I was like, who is that? I was like, I recognise that person. And it really took me a moment. Now, I'm somebody who has watched Star Wars a disgusting mm. amount of times. And I was like, holy shit, it's Mark Hamill. 
And because I've been avoiding doing a Tonya and avoiding spoilers yeah. and reading everything about it, I had no clue that he was in it. And I was like, he is amazing in this. He is. <laughs> yeah. What? Like, why are you making Mark Hamill terrify me? I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> but in the best way. The Pim like, Reaper. What have, you done? <laughs> what have you done to Mark Hamill? Yeah, he's great. I love his voice. I love the fact his that his voice start, is amazing. That, that you start to fight. It's a little bit Jokerish, like it's you know that he's from his Jokerish. But I love the fact you start finding out about little things about him, like his world expedition yeah. and the shit he got up to then. But my favorite moment of all this stuff that he does, because he does some great. He has he's great. He is. He's really good in it. But it is when he sits down with Verna and she sort of says like. Here's all this shit. I can get you off. Like that file can be found or it could be lost. You know, that's what I'm giving you. And he's like, I don't want to owe you anything. I'm good. Thank you very much. I'm going to let this play out. But it's the fact that he's presented with this clearly supernatural being. And he's just like, takes it in his stride. And he's like, yeah, I've seen some shit. (laughs) And this is just more of that. So, you know what? Crack on. (laughs) <laughs> that's what i like about his character because he is who he is he's yeah. not like he's not like the usher family who no. have two sides of them and put one face forward and like you know but are actually like despicable people and all of, mm. you know they're they're he is this is who i am and i'm never changing that this is just it yeah and, and you know and i respect a character <laughs> like that well, as evil as he is like he 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 is who he is, and he's damn good at what he does. Yeah. And the fact that he's their attorney, but also, like, all these other things for them. And and so I found myself, like, especially towards sort of the last two episodes, especially when him and Madeline are having conversations, and I was like, who is the power in the room mm. when he's in there? And I, and I find that so interesting. He's, like, the shadowy guy in the background who actually... He's the kind fixer. Yeah, yeah, and it really does wield all the power because they, although they've made this deal with Werner, they still need somebody to clear it all up. Well, yeah, and he, he knows where all the bodies are buried, mainly because yeah. he buried them kind of thing. But And before he had the conversation with Werner, I was thinking, is he like she is? Is he... Oh! Yeah, I was like, is he like a, a god, a goddess? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Something of mischief or or something like that. And I, and then, of course, he has the conversation with her, and I was like, well, that's that theory gone. But the more I saw of him throughout the episodes, I was like, has he been placed with the Usher family? Is he more? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, he is, because he does feel kind of supernatural with what he knows and how he finds things out, like the knowledge and the information he keeps spouting. Um, and he doesn't react to anything. No, like it's so interesting that the, in the third yeah. episode, and and the police officer saying, you know, our our guys are all vomiting mm. everywhere, and he just walks in, and it's like obviously I know that's there because of the terrible things that he's done to show us he's not yeah. shocked by any of these things. But it also made me start thinking, whoa, like is he some sort of mystical being as well? Sadly, yeah. not. No, but you <laughs> just say a terrible res- human being. Yeah, you, but you say about respect. Um, he also he has probably one of my favourite funny moments in the show, but also so respect. After everything, like when he is arrested and he's been walked up to the court, like Vernon turns up to sort of pay her respects. Like, wow, fair play! Like you let this play out, and you're, you know, doing. She clearly respects him, um, yeah. which I thought was really cool. But also when they have the photographs 
Oh my god, absolutely the funniest bit. And, <laughs> and like, and Roderick's like enhance, and he's like, it doesn't do that. <laughs> he's like, I've seen all the movies. Enhance. He's like, I can zoom. That's the best I can do. He's like, we'll do that then. It, like, it just makes so it blurry. Good. And he's the like, way he delivers it. Yeah. It's, and Roderick's like, well, let's zoom then. And he's, he's like, it makes it worse. And he's just like, we'd be better if it's enhance. He's just like, you can just go. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's so deadpan and so oh, well delivered. So good. Right. Are we going to do it? Let's talk about Verna. Uh, Carla, uh, yeah, Gugino. Powerhouse in this. Mm. And, you know, go on, I'll let you go first. What what, <laughs> what have you got to say? I've got, I've got thoughts, but like, just, yeah. I just, I mean, she's the best thing in this obviously I'm not Mm. saying anything new or exciting there um in terms of her performance and of how interesting she is as a character um and as I was talking for talking about before for me it's you know what is she and in my head I started thinking she's that I don't think she's good or bad I don't think she's an agent of anything I just think she is one of these entities that exists and her existence, the things that she likes, like I said, is basically she is a raven, shiny things. And in the worlds that we've built, those shiny things are people mm-hmm. and our personalities that for some reason society holds up that are deemed important. So she gravitates towards them. And I love that all she's doing is presenting them with a choice this is your choice yes and you can do whatever you want with it i am not gonna well she does certainly judge people in the end but we'll get to that i'm not going to judge you when presenting you with this choice Mm. and you go and do it and i and it feels uh, for me i would be really interested to find out if you think it's her toying with humanity for her amusement or not because I don't think it is I don't think it's for her amusement I think it's this is just what this is just the reason she exists yeah and she her job it's not even her job it's just her reason for existing is having to present people with this and they go and do it or is she like a god tinkering it's this level isn't it it's this level of power what is she and I have sort of thought on this in the last couple of days. Because, again, like she's the raven. You know, that's, um, you know, obviously Verna being, an, you know, an acronym. Acronym? That's not the right word, is it? No, what is it? It's, uh... Anagram. Thank you. There you go. Got it eventually. Of, of raven. So that's what she is. She is the raven, I think. But I was like, okay, well, what is that? I mean, you know, in, in Poe, um, in, in um, the... The poem, um, the Raven. It's it, the the Raven is just a Raven. It's it's the it's the person in the room that gives it power and gives it this mystique. But you know, uh, all the Raven says is never more. Um, but with her, I was like, you know, is she a god? Is she the devil? Is she whatever? Now, there's a couple of lines where they sort of they insinuate different things. Obviously, they talk about as you said, sort of like you know the the idea of Egyptology has come up repeatedly. So. There's a number of gods there. It's not, you know, that kind of thing where you've got multiple gods, a pantheon of gods. 
and you've said about the trickster gods kind of thing that those things exist and she also makes a reference at one point about a devil at the crossroads which you know we we know we know this is obviously a story of everything from uh, blues singers you know gaining the power you know all of a sudden becoming amazing guitar players and singers and all this other stuff and selling their souls at the, at the crossroads for fame and fortune um there is that but as you say is she a force for does she have an agenda i think is the question mm. and i don't think she does but i do think she get something because the, the other thing is they say they actually say to her about c- collecting souls and she's like oh well you know we know they don't exist or, you know it's a you know it's a fallacy like you know or, that's not why i'm doing this so it's not like she isn't the devil collecting souls for hell like that's dismissed so it can only be that doing this is some sort of like well i'm an immortal being and I've got these powers, so I do this to either entertain myself or just as a sort of an anthropological sort of experiment of like, <laughs> if I present these awful people with this opportunity, like, what will happen? But I've got to bring it to an end. I can't let it. It's like running an experiment, isn't it? Like, I can only, you can only do like when they do like mice or or sort of like, you know, uh, germs and viruses. Obviously, we can only let it multiply to a certain point. Then we've got to kill it off. Um, and that's what this feels like. Is like I'm going to run mm. this. I'm going to run this experiment to see what happens. And I'm only, but I'm only going to let it run so far. And then I'm going to, going to, you know, firebomb the whole thing. <laughs> um, Do you think she cares about humanity? Um, difficult question. Uh, it's a really difficult question because there's sort of suggesting that she does. Like she's presenting the ushers, especially Roderick, with you know when when that great scene when she finally confronts him and she's like they have the bodies falling from the sky of all the people that have been killed by ligadone and other drugs and stuff. She's presenting him with the consequences and saying this is you, but she's not saying he's evil she know at no point does she say like she's like, she's like this is you like you did this so like, you can't hide from this but at no point is she saying like you're an evil foul human being and she'll be punished like she, this isn't a punitive act it's more of a sort of like sort of a bit of a told you so do you know what i mean like well you know this is what you've done you got to face it now like face time to face the music so i don't no, and for now, I'll tell you actually, the definitive thing that tells me that she does not is she could have chosen to to let Lenore live. Yeah. And although she says about Lenore's death being the one that leads to save millions of people down the road, she's only saying that to sort of mollify Lenore. Like, I don't think she gives a shit. But she could, if she really cared about humanity, she'd have had that moment of saving that one good thing that's come out of this. But she doesn't. She she fireballs the lot. <laughs> so no, I don't and think a she deal's does. a deal, isn't it? Though? Well, exactly. She, yeah, yeah. You know, you know but, we see that Madeline straight away goes out and gets contraception, and it's like, well, I'm not having any fucking kids. Yes, because um, I'm not passing this horrificness on to them, um, which I have a lot of respect for. Whereas Roderick. Is he just having more and more kids because he thinks that means he'll outdo the curse? Is he doing it because he doesn't believe in it? Is he doing it because he just well, doesn't he, care? 
He says he's forgotten. As like, Madeline clearly he hasn't. hasn't. Well, no, I well again, this comes back to the types of people that Madeline hasn't forgotten. Yeah. Like she's she's a very calculated mathematical person. She's she deals in material facts. And although sort of like, you know, she may have repressed it, like she knows the point. Like she gets it. Um, I think Roderick being a narrative driven person, a fantasist even. Ooh. Is like, oh, it's all a fairy tale, you know, we're doing this for legacy and all this other stuff. Like, he's building a story for himself as well as, a, you know, a legacy. So, no, I think, you're yeah, right, I think he's particularly forgotten. They have suppressed it in different ways. And it, for me, it's, it. we'll get back to Vernon in a second, sorry, mm. um, is it shows the differences in their characters, is, as in their individual characters. So, from the very beginning, we're sort of told that Madeline isn't because she's a woman, she's an older woman. She, you know, you expect her to be maternal, nurturing, all of mm. those sort of things. And she isn't. She's not at all. But yet she actively chooses not to have children because mm. she doesn't want to pass this on to them, right? So she makes a real choice to not pass horrificness on to other human beings. Whereas Roderick, who is a father, who is doing things for his family, for his wife. They've got no money. Their child's sick. Yeah. You know, who we're supposed to be seeing as the hero character. So we're supposed to be disliking Madeline because she acts like a man mm-hmm. and liking Roderick because he acts like a woman. Yeah. And writes about his family. And then it's revealed throughout that Roderick is not a good person and doesn't care about his family and takes the deal straight away doesn't even hesitate and it's Madeline that hesitates and I think that's I love that subversion Mm. of men and women and of that reveal at the end that actually maybe Madeline wasn't a bad person well no she was let's be clear no no, but uh, but she's she's done bad things she's a bad person like she's done very terrible things but you know it's like this is a terrible reference but for band books we're talking about kite runner and mm. we're talking about how the main character in, in the kite runner sees the horrific crime and doesn't do anything about it and we all think that we would be the people who would stand up and do something about it but in reality most of us don't and reading that in that book is kind of a harsh mm. wake up back to earth wake up yeah, call, yeah. yeah. And I kind of felt like that about Madeline's character. She, I mean, she, she does so many terrible things. I'm not saying that she is a good person, but I liked that. And I liked that it was her who took Verna seriously mm. and took that night and everything that happened seriously because Madeline, as we know, has had to fight against the oppression from men yeah, for yeah. Like her entire life from the moment she was born because her father didn't own them and then trying to build a career and being dismissed her, you know, basically it sounds like everything she does gets stolen, um, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that sort of thing. And for me, like that works really well with Verna's character. And I like, I mean, there isn't time to explore it in the TV show, and I like that they don't, but it gets me thinking about the two of them and what they could mm. have caused her and Werner if Roderick was out of the picture and she just did the deal with Werner. 
because the for me as well in those scenes in the bar that connection is between Madeline and Werner. Oh, 100%. And I yeah, love yeah. that. And then mm-hmm. I love it's Roderick who is the face but does all these despicable things and hurts every single person around him. And I've completely lost my point, but though yes, it's like it and it's that Werner for me chooses Madeline. She doesn't choose Roderick. No, I think Madeline is what attracts Werner. Mm. Madeline is most definitely the sort of like the that flickering light that she's like, as you said, that shiny object. She's like, oh, this is new. This is something different. I haven't seen. Yes, I yes. haven't seen this before. Yeah, Roderick's a you know because she said, oh, he could have been a poet. Like he'd been broke, but he'd have been a poet. Like he's ten a penny. Like we've seen that before. You're something new. Like I, I want to see what I can do with you. Yeah, I think I think the whole thing was, as you say, is. Was turned on between Madeline and Werner. That's that's the um, and it's the fact that that Roderick runs with it is because mm. he created the children is the interesting thing. One thing I would say about the pair of them though, when he is confronted with his what he's done, like he never becomes. I would never say he's remorseful. Okay, Roderick's never has remorse for the people he has impacted outside of the family. Like I think he feels sorry. He feels guilt for what he has done to his family, but to anyone that is addicted to, to Ligodone, doesn't give a shit. Like, that's no, the thing. does not give a shit. To but, um, and, but there's a great speech by Madeline, because he does sort of waver at one point, and she's like, no, fuck them. Like, we created it, fine, but they took it. You didn't have to take it, but they took it. They became addicted. You didn't have to do that. Like, you know, it's like she's justifying it by saying, like, yeah. look, we may have been, we may have produced it, but like the people are weak. The masses are stupid. Like, you know, that's the kind of like, but that's this whole thing about capitalism and power, isn't it? That's yeah. where it's leading to that. But it is this thing of that they see themselves separate from yes. the hoi yeah. polloi, as it They're were. They're better than everybody else. They 100%. would never get addicted to ligodone. No. And of course you wouldn't, because you're rich white people. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you don't have to. Um, you've got, you know, Leo's got all the other good drugs. Um, <laughs> but it is this, I, I like this idea that I do think it was it was Madeline that attracted Werner in the first place. Um but I think it's one of those where I think even there's like a Werner's Werner was attracted in by Madeline, but as things played out, she was mm. more interested in Roderick because she's like, oh, Ver-, like she stepped out of this. Like mm. you, I almost think there's a disappointment in Madeline from Werner. Mm. Like you never, you know, you were supposed to be my Cleopatra, but you never really yes. truly achieved yes. your potential. Like Roderick overtook you you know i think so i think there's a bit of a disappointment from verna yes, yeah in, in you know what madeline could have become because i think she even says that one bit like what you could have become or what you yeah. can become and so and there's, there's like you know sorry and there is that emotion to verna mm. you know, she gives each of the usher children an out they don't have to die in the horrific ways that they do yeah and she constantly gives them an out they could have died in their sleep and not known and so there is emotion, there is compassion to her, which I think lends more to what you're saying than than I was very much sort of like, I think this is just what she does and there's like she has no control over it. But actually, mm. I think it lends more to what you're saying in terms of, is this just like a grand experiment 
for her to see whether humanity will rise from the ashes. Yeah. Uh, heads up, Vernon, we don't. We don't. Yeah, we're screwed. We're, we're making it all worse. Yeah. The house that falls at the end is literally the world. Yeah. And we're done Just for. Just come for us all. I want to yeah. die in my sleep, though. That'd be yeah. Lovely, thanks. But like you said, you, that's a really good point, because she does, every single one of them, she gives the possibility of being out of an out. Like, she meets Prospero on the bed, and she sort of, you know, she sort of, and he's like, oh, we'll, you know, we'll do this later. The one she gives the most out to is Camille, where she literally yeah. says, why are you, you shouldn't be here. Like you, She's almost like, you don't want this death. Yeah. Like, this is, um, and yeah, some of the others as well, sort of like, you know, the, the she gives them that out. The, the only one she doesn't really is Froderick, where yeah. she's just like, now you're a complete prick. Like you're <laughs> yeah, getting what it. you get. You're getting yeah. what you're getting. Like we, we're done. Um, but she, and she gives them visual clues as well, you know, with um uh, with Leo, she's wearing the uh, cat collar and yep. a little bell. She's wearing a skull mask mm-hmm. with um, Perry and stuff like that. So it's like, come on, you lot. I mean, obviously you deserve to die because you're all terrible, but she's literally telling you all both how she looks and what she's saying to you. Yeah. You don't have to do these terrible things. And they're like, I'm a terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> go, go awfulness. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think I think that's the thing. Like, Verna is is she's about choices. This whole thing is about choices. Yeah. Like, because again, like you could choose to be a good person. You can have all this power and you could choose to be a good person. They chose to have to come to power and gain their wealth through Ligodone, this you know, this, this secretly addictive painkiller. And obviously this is leaning into the opioid problem in the States and, and you know, other places. But like, yeah, there's the point that sort of Werner keeps making, especially to Madeline, is like, you could have done anything. Like you chose that path. Like this is all you, you know. This is that. This is your legacy. And when sort of the bodies are falling, and that's what Roderick's seeing. Like she says, to him, "That's your true legacy." You know, you will for years stride apart, you know, upon a pile of bodies that you've left behind you. That's the point. Um. So I, did, I don't think, yeah, like she doesn't particularly have an agenda, but she clearly is watching closely. Like she's almost like a people watcher. Like she sets yeah. things in motion and then lets them play out um but it's just t- it's time isn't it like you know him getting ill he's like right okay now time to call the herd kind of yeah. thing and um so she's she's going to kill him off in different ways um yeah i don't know it's just, she, she i think the, the, the funny thing about this is because there's a moment where it's like that um Pim has done an internet search, like he's done an algorithm that's gone through and looked for her face in all these other photos. A mixed bag of Photoshop, I will say. But um, how do you think? Do you think they like really had to get their lawyers involved and be like, if we do this, are we going to get in trouble? Some more so than others, I think. Like dead people and dead presidents and all that kind of thing. I bet they were a bit like, you know, oh, this happens in films, like no one's <laughs> going to give a shit. But there were others that I was a bit like, okay, they. They've they've had to Rupert cover them. Murdoch. I don't want yeah. to go up against him. Thanks. No. Well, like, no, he's clearly a terrible person. Let's Photoshop that together. Yeah. I was like, uh... Trump's in there. Like, yeah. you know, clearly. Um, well, they they suggest actually they I, I like the, they indicate that in this that then when he's talking to Pim like that he's taken a deal. Like obviously like, that the Trump family and the Usher family clear parallels. But even Pim's like, when's his time? There's only so much I can. There's only even so much I can take. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, he was very good. But um, yeah, that thing of her being the same face throughout history, choosing that. Um, and I, I always have a, a kind of problem with this in films because it feels like a bit of a um, cop out where, you know, it's always the same face through history. You go, yeah, but you can change into a freaking raven and she can do all this <laughs> other stuff. Like, why does she always have to look the same? You know, like, um, it, it feels a little bit too easy almost. Like, you know, she's turned up in all these photos like throughout the 20th century. Um, I was almost hoping for, like, and we have this papyrus that we found. <laughs> Um, but that'd have been, I think, a bit. That'd have been a, a push too far. Um, and also, also like, I mean, and this is just a really tiny nitpick. I was like, these are all really famous people, right? Yeah. Surely someone else before this has gone. Hold on, these really famous people in these like quite like like I would presume famous shots, like publicity shots. Like sometimes it's out with famous people, like paparazzi shots this woman keeps popping up with this woman yeah Yeah. (laughs) like i mean jesus christ like especially like the the 90s and early 2000s you couldn't stop getting photos of famous people in every single newspaper i'm like come on come on yeah yeah somebody else has put this together she'd have been there with jada pinkett smith um yeah Um, one of the things i thought about this that's again it's, this is the I would think is the weaker part. This is the one little part of the story that niggles me. Is exactly as you're saying, like you know, people. This would be the fir- this wouldn't be the first time someone's gone. Oh, <laughs> some of these are archived photos. Like some yeah. of these are famous photos, and you're just like, hang on, like someone should have noticed this. Um, but the other thing is, we've said about this being um, a playing out an experiment. So from 1980 to 2023, okay, they've had this 42-year experiment, okay, where they've done this and this is what the the House of Usher has become. Cool, fine. The ramifications on the wider world of that experiment are massive. And obviously they have a knock-on effect. There's always this knock-on effect. So what other things has she done where she's given options that have had, like, huge history changing? Because she talks about, like, oh, well, Roderick, would have been a poet. I don't mean, you know, we don't really know what Madeline would have been, but you know, that's one thing that's dropped. But I'm going back and looking at these photos. He's saying, going like, what would what would have what would have Rupert Murdoch been <laughs> apart from maybe you know, I don't know. I'm definitely sure he'd have been a rapist, but <laughs> he's going to be dead soon. I'm going to say this. And no one's no one's going to sue 20th century geek. Don't be ridiculous. Um, I mean, but, I she's clearly got her little raven claws into Boris Johnson. Oh, 100. percent yeah, I, genuinely, I was like, "Is Boris Johnson?" Maybe she was pictures. the na- she was the nanny that Carrie threw out. That's what I think was that. Yeah, it's nice. Um, but like, it it made me think like, how much of human history has she changed? Yeah, just not really caring because it's just as you say, indifferent. But just those choices, those choices that have been made, have influenced um, human history. And that was sort of interesting to me. I was like, okay, well, yeah. how how different could we have been then if she hadn't have intervened? Because she basically sort of like gives awful people the option to be even more awful. And that's so interesting, isn't it? And and I think Mike Flanagan once again is holding up a mirror to society of what we deem as important because these are all awful people. 
Yes. And, you know, I feel like Mike Flanagan very much wears his politics on his sleeve um, <laughs> and he is not right wing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I and so I find that a really interesting that there's not a single good person mm. that there is a photo of her with. Like, well, you know, and I and I I love what he's saying there about society and what we deem as how powerful people exist and and how as society we are going i mean we're not enabling these people it's a, what the one percenters are enabling yeah. these people and and that's what's really interesting how how those one percenters um keep it going and and how they keep society as it is and keep everybody the status down. quo that's yeah, it yeah. thank you god can you just come and translate me all the time that'd be really helpful because <laughs> you've done that so much in this chat you know and, it, and it, it's that tiny proportion of society and so she's not she doesn't care about anybody else no and 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 you know and i was like clearly you've got a lot to say about these type of people yeah oh yeah but like I said, it's that thing of like it's you know as a raven, it's what interests her, and what's new, what's glittery, what's the potential to do these things. But I also think there's a point being made um, by Flanagan about you know what they say like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like you're saying, about, there's nothing good have come from these people. Well, the potential was always there for mm. them to have done good, but they chose not to. And I think that's the point he's making. Is like. Human history is replete with shits being shits. And that's the that's the thing. You know, and she she basically gave them the opportunity and lo and behold, they were awful. Um so I think that's the uh that's the sort of thing for me. It's, it's fascinating. Again, like we live in a time, you know, and they, they, they sort of point out Trump and you say about the Murdochs and stuff, but to me, I was watching this and I'm thinking like the Trump family, the Cardassians all these families that sort of like get elevated and treat people horrendously and just feel that they can get away with it. And you are like that 1%. And I'm like, that means there's 99% that should really be like baying at their gates to burn them down. But, you know, we're all on painkillers and watching television and eating cake. <laughs> yeah, so. because we're manipulated by that yeah. 1%. Yeah. Because they hold the power over all of us. And we've just, as we were talking about before mm. this, we, there's been like some sort of mass delusion of the human race mm. that this is the status quo and this is how it should be and it shouldn't and and he's very much saying that you know maybe that's just my uh woke agenda reading that into this tv show well, i think that's everyone, what I, yeah, one of the things I i've think, taken away from it no no i agree i think it's 100 percent there i mean I, I was talking to tony just last week about uh they live we were talking about the exact same <laughs> oh, thing oh yeah so. So I think with this feeling has been around for decades and, and you know, vive la revolution. That's what I say. <laughs> Burn it down. Start again. Um, anyway, we shall come to an end. I think this, 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 this was... Yeah, a... we're going to talk about it forever otherwise, aren't we? Yeah. This this is, to me, I let, you know, let's quickly... I there's, there's, We haven't watched Midnight um, Club. We haven't watched that. But he has got his others. So, let's, but I, so what, what I want to do... We talked about the the, um, the siblings, but the four. Let's just talk about the four. I think that we sort of consider. So you've got um, the haunting of Hill House, the haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and the fall of the House of Usher. 
let's give them a quick four rundown from four down to four to one. So let's let's give it yours first. I think oh, we'll be the don't same. Let me but... go first. Yeah. Okay. So four is clearly Bly Manor. Yeah. Um, four, um, four's the worst, right? Isn't it? Oh, I don't know because I love Midnight Mass so much. But if I'm ranking them, it doesn't mean that I love one any less. It just means rewatchability. No, it doesn't mean that either. Oh, I don't like this. <laughs> it's really Mid- hard. Mid- Midnight Mass, Usher, yeah. Hill House. I-, I think I agree. Yeah. But I may come back to this in like three weeks and be like, actually, no, Midnight Mass has jumped back yeah. to number two. But yeah. um, at the moment, I think this is a strong follow-up to, this, to Hill this House. Is, the problem with ranking them is not only are they all exceptional, maybe apart from Blind Manor, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think we have TV like this. I think we have amazing TV at the moment. I'm not shitting on that at all because... Mm-hmm. We are in the wealth of amazing TV shows that explore so many different things. And I love it. And I think we've got so many talented people making TV, uh, support TV writers, everyone, and, and actors and everybody else. Um, <laughs> but I don't think we have TV like this. I don't think we have shows that like, like the ones that Mike Flanagan are doing. Mm. And so although we are ranking his four particular shows you know i for me midnight mass is one of the best tv shows i've ever seen and i could still spend the rest of my life talking about it if anybody wants to talk to (laughs) me about it but there was something about hill house which had not for me been captured in tv or film before and that's just why it's so highly rated for me personally i know other people don't think it's that great but for me i was like no to me i think i think hill house is premium a premium no, and, tv show yeah i think, it's, I think it's up there as one of the best things one of the best it's one of the best serialized ghost stories mm. ever mm. and i think it's gonna be one of those things that each generation will watch mm. and it will continue on and it will not degrade in quality no Every year it's come out, because so I quickly checked this thing, it has been in Netflix's top 10 in October every year yeah. since it came out. That doesn't surprise me. I, it was really hard not to re-watch Hill mm. House before watching this. The only reason I didn't is because you suddenly messaged and were like, holy shit. Gotta watch it. <laughs> House of Ashes coming out <laughs> next week. And yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> it makes me think so we'll finish on one thing because i think we, we both agree this was fantastic and i was so pleased it's been fantastic and I, you know i'd love to meet and talk with mike flanagan oh so God. if you're never listening mike give us a call you know i see i'm not i don't get like weird about celebrity or whatever because i just don't really think it's a thing but when i'm around talented people yeah which doesn't help is i spend a lot of my time with the femon ladies and they're all incredibly talented and they they I just feel completely overwhelmed by how amazing they are I would have the exact same problem that I have when I'm talking about any of those ladies where I'd just be like oh, I just want to hear you talk and I can't say anything intelligent or or that makes sense no. and that would happen to me with Mike Flanagan I'd be like just talk just say words at me and you I'm just fine want... no you're right though that's what I'd do I'd be like right I've set four questions <laughs> I you know I've pre-recorded them so I don't look like a tit when I say them to you <laughs> 
and then go. And I'm sure he'll just fill an hour's worth of time. You're right. You know, it would be amazing. I do feel the same. There are people that you speak to and you just go like, this person is like way out of my creative yeah. sphere. <laughs> You're just like, so yeah, um, it would be amazing. It would be amazing to hear him talk. Um, one thing I've been thinking about, and I think, I don't know if you, you know, I'm going to drop this on you, but. Oh God. Okay. No, no, because no, I, I thought about it. Um, I was like, what next? Like you know, you've we've done um, Hill Hill House and 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 Shirley Jackson, you know, Blind Manor and um, Henry James, um, which you know they are stories within their oeuvre, as it were. This is like the Poe show, you know, like he's taken he's got the whole house, but crammed in so much more. And I'm like, who could he do next? Like, what could he do next? Like, is this? Is he is he now set the bar too high, like with these things? Like, you know, is is what next? The only thing I can think of is like I was like, right, I want him to do a Lovecraft kind of nice. thing. But like I don't want him to go full yeah, yeah. I don't want to see loads of elder beings. Like there are other stories. I want him to do like the lesser known Lovecraft stories. Like start with uh the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which has never read it. Great story about generational um not sort of generational but like generations and dark and black magic and identity and monsters of course uh but I'd, i want to see like yeah him take on something like that would be really cool but see you've taught there is something i'm interested in so i i was thinking about this funny enough so haha i'm prepared <laughs> um of themes i want i would like him to yeah. do i couldn't think of particular writers but themes um cults Mm-hmm. So I'd love mm-hmm. to theme cults, mostly because I'm obsessed with them. Um, I'm not in one or want to have one or anything like that, but <laughs> I I find the idea of them absolutely fascinating. And Spider Dan and I next year are going to do do an episode on it. Or magic, they're the things. Or <laughs> there's a third one. You'll, you'll be interested. Witchcraft. Yeah. So oh, that would like, be good. Magic and witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, they're the themes. I mean, I like. I'd be very interested in him doing. Yeah, I can imagine there's plenty of stuff to do in the old magic, like you know, Alistair Crowley sort of covering off cults and stuff of the early 20th century, and and maybe like the witch trials or something else, and you know, modernising it. Yeah. Um, if you are going to look at cults, just soon, this is obviously a different thing, but I'm sticking with Netflix. Netflix movie called Apostle. Uh, so I've not watched Apostle before, but I've, I've heard so much about it. And it's one of those things where me and my other half are like, it's on our watch list, we'll get around to it. And then it's like a rare Saturday night where we've got it free. And it's like, do you know what? I don't want to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll just watch whatever terrible film is on Sky at 9pm. <laughs> it's fair enough. I mean, maybe. But Apostle is good. I do recommend Apostle. <laughs> right. Anyway, we'll start wrapping up. There's been some, this has been amazing. We could just talk for hours now. I know. But... I know. Why do we keep on doing this to ourselves in the best way? It's brilliant. Isn't it? There'll be so much more to come. We will. You will be back. I'm sure. We'll come, yes. it's, been, it's been too long, but you know, 20th Century Geek is now in full flow where we're doing stuff. Um, but yeah. But before I sort of talk about what we're up to on the show, Ria, firstly, thank you so much. For talk, coming on talking about this and you know more mike flanagan mike more flanagan please <laughs> do it for us <laughs> yeah um we want to do a flagathon again i don't know a flagathon that sounds awful 
A full marathon of flowers. Sounds like something Perry would do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but where can people find you and where can people hear you? Yes, so come and find me at Femon. I talked about it just now. It's the Femon Collective. It's a female-led podcast. We all have our own shows. It's amazing. We talk about different things, film, TV, comics, activism, books. Uh, Alison does an amazing show where she'll talk about a scene from anything and then we'll talk about it. Tonya is our active activism person. I can't say what I was trying to say there. And her episodes will make you want to go and with your pitchforks and burn the world and, yeah, down. Burn the world down i'm pretty Ada sure tanya would be near will... me yeah, behind yeah. the hill over the, <laughs> over the one percenters <laughs> ada will lull you in with her beautiful speaking mm. voice and then share some radical poetry with you that will blow your mind jess will just make you want to read all of the books in the world that you don't have time to so your pile or your wish list will just build it up and up and up and I talk about film and tv and creativity um most recent episode of film on film is with our friend Tony Farina about yeah. the film Assassination Nation if you want to listen to 90 minutes of two grown adults go is this any good I don't know this is the podcast for you <laughs> go and have a listen that's it 90 minutes of indecision that's what yeah, we always it's, want it's great um so yeah come find us uh femon.show is the website oh god i can never remember the instagram which is terrible but just look for like the femon podcast femon podcast uh, podcast collective we're around there or me at ria carrigan yeah wonderful and i, I can believe yeah you yeah you guys do great work it's uh um some fascinating topics that makes me think about things, especially as I've got, you know, I have a daughter and I have to sort of keep things, keeps me in, you know, in a certain mind frame at times as she gets older. Um, so it's, it's important. Um, anyway, where to find me? So obviously follow the more of the 20th century. Keep. We've got more stuff coming up. We've got, uh, Tony is back. We, we carried on our story time. We've done uh death race and we've done, um, what else are we doing? We didn't. They live recently. We talked about that, and we've got the thing coming up uh, to talk about, and we've got rear window and so many other bits and pieces. Yeah, but me and Tony, where you guys were just doing indecision. The, I will say that the lay, they live podcast is just me and him going. This is brilliant <laughs> for ninety minutes. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's less analysis and just talk like more us sort of geeking out. Um, but there's great stuff, and obviously find the Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash. 20CG uh, Media and all the kinds of do Trekking Through the Twilight Zone and me and Julian Darius doing other stuff on there from uh, Stories Out of Time and Space. And coming in the future, keep an eye out for the future, so announcement soon, Julian and I have another project. We are looking at the whole uh, back catalogue of Akira Kurosawa. Uh, and we're going from sort of his earliest films pre-World War II to his post-war career at the moment and uh, it's fascinating i'm learning an awful lot about japanese history uh but anyway for now ria thank you so much again for coming on the podcast um it's always a treat to talk to you and you'll be again back again soon yeah thank you so much this was amazing uh -huh. and ladies and gentlemen thank you very much and we'll talk again soon mm -hmm.